It's been an interesting week. Uh, we have the grandkids over because a lot of their parents are down south for a wedding. I also have their dogs. Um, I had pretty much just set, I was going to do something very special on John 3.16. Well, it's so special that I'm not going to be doing John 3.16. Thursday night, I'm finishing up my notes, gathering everything together, and God's going, uh, I want you to go somewhere else. So I'm going somewhere else. Where's my title? My title. No, that's not. Right, but I'll let you know in the first verse. The title is Sticks and Stones. Ever hear that old saying? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Has anybody ever said that and heard that? I wish that was really true. I've taken many beatings in my younger days. Um, survived a lot of different confrontations, but the ones that junior, oh, wait a minute, they're supposed to go to junior church? Oh, I'm sorry, junior church. I'm new at this, I don't know. I took you literally, there was no announcements. <laughs> I'm sorry. Kids are dismissed to junior church. As I was saying, the sticks and stones, names will never hurt me. I don't know. If it means getting beat up again, I'd rather get beat up again than take some of the insults and the names that people had had used and flung at me as a young man. Um, They were deep and hard. Um, Words have meaning. They have power. They can bring you up to the highest highs and joy. And someone says, I love you. Or they can bring you down to the lowest lows. I don't love you. Even the smallest words can change the meaning of something that starts one way and goes another. Little words like it, or, and, and but. Ooh, but's a good one, because that one's... It can change the whole meaning. It can change the whole flow of a conversation. It can change the whole flow of a discussion. Just an example, I'm going to use but, because that one's a real interesting one. You know the word but has four different classifications. It can be a conjunction. It can be a preposition. It can be an adverb. It can be a noun. It's a versatile little word. And you have to be careful. I always trigger on when I hear but. I heard what you're saying, but. And then he stumbled, but he didn't fall. That's different. The but that I always get and I always hear that seems to be used most likely is when it's used as an exception. I care about what's happening to you, but basically that just negates everything that was said before here. And we're not even getting into the words that can be used if used improperly. 
Words can be taken out of context. They can be redefined. They can be misused. Now, there was a famous Inquisition, during the Inquisition, there was a famous Inquisitioner, if you want to call him that. Basically, they tortured people. During the Spanish Inquisition, said that I can take any 12 words out of context and convict them of heresy. Context is very important, even in today's society. The whole idea of social communication, verbal intercourse, Discussions and, and disagreements. How to have a discussion and a disagreement in a civil manner seems to have been lost in our society today. The immediate response is name calling and they go to the extreme and put you to the end and they start using these words like you're vile, you're evil. Throwing in the worst words you could possibly do. We've seen it in the media. Now, I'm not going to say who, quote, who said this, but this is a quote. Destruction of property is not violence. Uh, when I heard that, I was kind of like speechless, because I'm like, just to be sure, I looked up the definition of violence in the dictionary. As a noun, it says, behavior involving physical force intended to hurt damage or kill someone or something. It's also strength of emotion or an unpleasant destructive nature's force. Force, excuse me. Law says the unlawful exercise of physical or intimidation by the exhibition of force. So right in the beginning of those definitions, and this is like from Webster's Dictionary, it says that violence is force. You know, violence is destruction of property. So we're seeing this very often where they're redefining words, or they're using what's called sophistic reasoning, where they take a word and they define it to the far left or to the far right of its meaning. And then they use that word to start the definition of the next word, which again they do, they define it to the far right, to the far left. Now the reason they do this is because they have a purpose for where they want this, this thought to go. And it's not what normal people would follow, A, B, C. It is up A, G, W, Z, S. Because they have a certain reason for why they're defining the word they do. Insurrection is another one. When they had on the news that there was an insurrection in Washington, D.C., did anybody look up and find out what the word insurrection really meant? It's an armed takeover of a government or power to bring down the downfall of that government or power. Now, why do you think they use such a uh, word? Because they want people to get emotionally coiled up. They want people to get emotionally upset. So they don't think about what's actually being said. They don't think logically. They don't think, is this true? So in the world, this is all just in the world. Words can be vicious. They can be powerful. They can move you. They can move people. Hitler's 
propaganda minister said, if you say something long enough, loud enough, and often enough, you can control the people. And if you control the media, you control the people's hearts. That's just in the world. Now, that was my example from the world and nature. I'm kind of taking a page from some of the early Puritan, I think it's Owens, who did huge messages and he would take nature and then people and then scripture and God's word. Well, now this is the part B. This is scripture. How much more powerful and rich is the word of God in our Bible And people say, well, <clears throat> I've had two big arguments with my, eh, I call them disagreements with my father before he passed. Now, my father was a Methodist minister. He went to BU. He got his bachelor's in theology. I became Baptist. And he asked me one time, Paul, why did you become Baptist? And I kind of said tongue-in-cheek, because they fed me, Dad. Now, I wasn't talking just the food. I was talking the word also. The Methodists try the food thing, but they just don't quite do it as well. They really try, but they don't have it down. Baptists seem, for some reason, really get this food thing down really well. But the argument we had, I would call it a disagreement. My father would have called it an argument, because he got very upset at me, which was very rare. We were discussing the Word of God. Now, I believe the Word of God is God-breathed. It's inspired. And we'll get to more of that, all right? And I take that literally. My father believes it is good poetry. It's useful. But experience is placed over Scripture. At first, it kind of confused me, but then I realized where he's coming from. Now, for not only was my father Methodist, he was British Methodist, which is even more liberal in Britain than it is in the United States. So he carried a lot of that stuff through. And we started discussing, well, I started discussing, and he started getting angry, which is very unusual for my father, about why I believed what I believed. And at the end of the conversation, he cut me off. I hadn't even finished. He cut me off. He says, you know you're a literalist. And he walked away. And I said, thank you, Dad. And he turns around and goes, you know, I didn't mean that as, as a compliment. I said, yeah, I know. And he walked off and he had to cool down. One of the first times, well, actually, second time I've ever seen my father, that aggravated or upset. And I just sit there and said, good, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I pissed my dad off, but <clears throat> was over the word of God. Now, how do we know that? The Bible itself attests to this. It attests to its power, its surety, its source. Now we can go to the first one. God's word in scripture is powerful. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and its discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Oh, ooh. Um, 
that doesn't leave much space for much anything else, right? Now, I had done years ago a, a, a message on Hebrews 4.12, where I got the scary shot from, and people here remember what scary shot was. The word double-edged sword was, at the time, what was, what was the most common thing they would have seen? It would have been a sword, and the soldiers kept them sharp, and they well knew what, the, what a sword could do. Here it says, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Sharper than the sharpest you can think. All right, I'll revisit my scary shop just for a minute for those who don't know it. I've sharpened my own cutlery. I used to make my own cutlery. When I got it to what I called my right sharpness, the test was to bring it up to my arm and shave some hair off my arm. Well, when I got it to scary shop, as I brought the blade to my arm to the hair, the hairs would leap off before I even touched them in mortal fear. That's scary shop. Well, the word of God is sharper than that. It's powerful. It can separate our soul and spirit. It can take, away, take our joints and marrow apart and all our, our ligaments. And it, not only that, it's a discerner. That means it knows our thoughts and tense of our heart. Would you believe that all good and evil comes from our hearts? All our desires come from our heart, whether they be good or bad. God knows those. There are times that we try to hide from that fact and pretend that God doesn't know what we're doing. He knows all the time. Point number two. God's word is perfect and it is trustworthy. Second Samuel twenty-two thirty-one. As for God, His ways, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried, and He is a buckler to all them that trust Him. Now, if God is perfect, what He gives us in His word is perfect. It says His word is tried. That means it's been tested, proven and shown that it is trustworthy, invaluable. God doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. All these things you can find in God. God himself, his character is revealed through his word. Some religions say you shouldn't try to find out what God is and what his character is like because it would be blasphemy to even try to know him. But we are blessed in the fact that he has revealed those characteristics to us in his word. His holiness, his righteousness, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, all the lovely omnis. Basically means he knows everything, he's all-powerful, he's in all places at all times. There's nothing you can do to pull the wool over his eyes. He shows us his character of his love, his kindness, his mercy, his grace, his righteousness, his holiness his righteous anger. See, God, like, unlike us, cannot violate his own character. That's the only thing that God can't do. He's not going to let one of his points of his own character violate or overcome one of the others. God is love, yes, but he is also righteous. He is also holy. And that's why he gave us Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Because none of us can meet his level, his requirements of being holy, being righteous. Three. God's word is true and unchanging. Now, I had a little problems with this because I didn't, couldn't find the exact verse I was looking for, but I will try to show it to you. I mean, in the end of Revelation, it says not one piece of this will be changed. But I didn't use that verse. Now, this is Christ speaking. Think not that I am come to destroy the law, or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, one stroke or one pronunciation mark, or jot or tittle, shall in no ways pass from the law till it be fulfilled. I know that one's a little bit not quite, but you can see where I'm going with that. God is unchanging. His character is unchanging. He's truthful. He is reliable. We can look at the word and see those characteristics in him. And if those characteristics are in him, they're in his word that he is God-breathed. He's inspired. And the Bible itself professes that. Now, here's one. Number four, the Bible is from God and is spiritually given. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophet, as in these days, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he, that's God, has appointed heir to all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now, that's interesting. This verse, I could have done a whole message just on this verse. That last line. Think about it. Does that imply that Christ was there upon the creation of the world? or even before. For those who don't understand the Trinity or the Godhead, that's an argument you can use, or at least lay down the foundation for. The second one is 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. Now I went back an extra verse because I'm very hard trying not to take things out of context. I didn't want to make it too long, but I also didn't want to abbreviate to the point where I'm taking something out so starting at 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as to a light that shines in the dark place until the day dawn, and the day star arises in your heart. This is a key one. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not old in old times, but by the will of man. That's in the old times. And it didn't even come that way. 
But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So we're saying that prophecy should not be interpreted by man for their own use. And when it is prophesied by holy men, it was given to them by the moving of the Holy Ghost. Number five, the word of God is spiritually revealed. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14. Now we have received not the spirit of the word, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know things that are freely given to us of God. Gee, we have the gift that God has given us this stuff. And it's free to those who believe. I just realized I'm reading without my glasses. That's why I'm stumbling around so much. Forgive me. Number page, um, verse 13. Which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but, that, that little word again, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the nature, natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. That verse is really interesting too. Not only does it say how that the word is spiritually discerned, but it also says natural man versus Spiritual man, you're going to have to look up what a natural man is, but I'm going to tell you. It's clear. Number six, the word of God, scripture, is inspired, God breathed. Now, I'm going to get in a little bit more into that definition because people throw that out with understanding what the word means. What does it mean to be inspired? What does it mean to be... Actually, inspired means God breathed. What does it mean? Second Timothy... Now, this is a split. So I'm going to do part A and part B. Second Timothy 3.16a. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Now, the second half is going to be point seven, which is it is useful. It provides us for what we need daily. It's just not good poetry. So 2 Timothy, I'm going to read the whole thing over again, but this, this com, the, the focus is going to be on 16b and 17. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished to all good works. All good works, not some, all, and that we may be perfectly and thoroughly furnished. Now, on the, this is where some people trip up. What it means to be inspired or God breathed. Let 
When people speak of the Bible as inspired, they're referring to the fact that God divinely influenced the human authors of the scripture in such a way that they, are, that they wrote the very word of God in the context of scripture. The word inspired simply means God breathed. Inspiration means the Bible truly is the Word of God and makes the Bible unique among all other books. Think about it. It's unique amongst all other books. Other religions cannot claim, or they can, but they can't support it, that their book is God-breathed or God-inspired. Confucianism, Buddhism, we're all based on men. We have other religions, and I can get into this too many. Then we could get into verbal plenary inspiration. That sounds like a mouthful, doesn't it? Means the inspiration extends to the very words themselves. That's the verbal part. Not just the concepts or ideas, and that in its print, you know, excuse me, in its inspiration, extends to all parts of Scripture and subject matters of Scripture. And that's the plenary part. So does that mean that the, this printed word on this paper I think it's the part where it says the concepts and ideas. And so not only is it the wording, it's the concepts, the ideas that's inspired. Do you think God, the holiest God, the God all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing, would allow something to be said that he did not want to be said? Now, my father believed that a lot of the Old Testament and a lot of the New Testament was allegorical. And I think this is where we the argument started, because I believe as we were talking about Jonah, I said, no, Jonah was literal. He says, well, nature and science-wise, how could a man be swallowed by a whale or a big fish and survive? That was the other part. I said, but then you're leaving out the power of God. This is something that God instituted and happened, and he can determine anything he wants. Whether you have problems believing it and conceptuating it in mind, whether science doesn't jive because you have a slanted view, and then that's when he went off. Jonah was swallowed by a whale, sat there for a while, and then it was barfed out. Now, some say it was a big fish, some say it was a you know, groper, giant groper. It was a big fish. Well, actually, whales aren't fish, they're mammals. But what happened was not allegorical. It wasn't a story told to make a point. It was actually what happened. Now, there is some allegory in Scripture, but this was not one of those. And where I took the word literally that Jonah was swallowed by the whale, 
and where my father couldn't conceptualize that, couldn't ratify that in his mind with what he used for science and what he thought. He was limiting God. Well, God himself was not limited. Now, depending on what version you read, I like the old King James for reading because I love the rhythm, the rhyme to the words, the flow. I love the Old Testament, and I especially love Proverbs because I love the version of what they call Hebrew poetry. Now, I haven't been read to it in Hebrew. I'd love to be read to it in Hebrew and hear the actual words, how they read them. But Hebrew poetry is when they say, Forgive me. I'm having a blank. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. This is not Proverbs. Where is it? Forgive me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. What is that? That's a two-sided coin. What to do, what not to do. A hasty man exalteth folly, but he was slow to wrath with a great understanding. The not to do. Hasty. And it's telling you it's folly, because if you be hasty and angry in the context of that verse, you're going to get into trouble. You're going to have folly. But if you're slow to wrath, it says you have great understanding, which means you've taken your time, you've taken the breath, you've counted the ten, whatever you had to do, and you don't let your mouth spew what your brain and heart is thinking. The beauty of this book, not just in the words it carries, but how it's said, is wondrous. It takes my breath away. It should take your breath away, too. If you read it, and you stop at something you don't understand, a word that doesn't make sense, or a concept of saying, yeah, I'm just going to continue reading. That's, you know. That is a stop. That is a yield sign from God. That is something saying, I'm saying something you really should look at. Don't just gloss it over and, 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 and you know, pass it by. The simple therefore. When you come across a therefore in Scripture, what should you do? Look for what it's there. That's what one of my teachers say. The therefore is there so you can see what it's there for. Basically, all the discussion or argument that was made before the therefore is now being consummated and made to the final point after. From everything I've said up to this point, now is the final point. This is the big thing I want you to get. I've laid the foundation. And here's the capstone. Also, wherefore is another version of therefore. Anytime you see a but, if, any of those words that change or adjust the meaning or add to a meaning or and, these little words can take your reading of the word to a new level. If you stop for a moment and say, what is that there? Why am I... What? All right, and, and what? He's adding to something. 
What did he just add to? Did I just gloss over the first part and not get it? So he's adding to something. What is he adding to? Or, all right, he's saying that this is, it's either or. So what is it saying, either or for? Or even the word for. And, but. Remember, but has four different meanings. It can be used four different ways verbally. It's a very versatile little word. See what it's in the word for. Because the word of God is not only powerful, it's not only God-inspired, it is beautiful. It can make your heart sore. It can also make you a little bit heart heavy. When it points something out, it's like, e -e -e. okay. I'm not doing that. Or it challenge you to make a commitment that I don't know if I'm ready for. Well, if he's challenging you, technically, don't you think that he thinks you're ready for it? When it says you're in trials and tribulations and you don't think you can handle it, what does the scripture say? It says, he will not give you more than you can handle. He will give you a way out. So the wondrous thing about this word, it, it, it interlaces with everything in our life. Every subject. People go, well, what about smoking? Okay, it doesn't say smoking in the Bible. But there are concepts and ideas about how we should treat our body. What about self-defense? <clears throat> well, I've been challenged on that one a lot because I'm part of the security group. Yeah, it's there. You just have to look for it. You have to understand and know what you're looking for. What about governments and politics and how they're treating us? It's there. How about my, raising of my family, my children? Oh, it's there. How should we treat our spouses? It's there. When it says, um, oh, I'm misquoting this too. Husband, love your wives. Wives, obey your husbands. Why is that given? Women have no problem loving their husbands. That's not their problem. Do they have problems being obedient? Now, we got to be careful how we structure obedient. That doesn't mean everything I say to my spouse, she has to do. But having the attitude of obedience, listening to your husband, and even sometimes when he's wrong, as long as he is not violating scripture or some moral predict that you still need to go along with it. And a lot of times afterwards you say, I told you so. That's not biblical. Husbands, interesting. Why do they say love your wives? Do we have problems being, do what I say? No. Do we have problems being authoritarian? No. Do we have problems expressing our loves for our wives in a manner that they can understand and appreciate? Yes. Mark, you remember when we were doing your, your marriage counseling, I told you about the the, you know, the, the, the little, the dividend that pays big. Little random acts of kindness. Th 
things to show your spouse you love her. You can say it, but you need to show it too so that your actions align with your words and your words align with your actions. And that's in the Bible. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your being. That doesn't leave any headroom, does it? If you love me, you will obey me. It's all here. From our relationship to our spouses, relationship with fellow man, relationship with our government, our families, to God. It's here. And it's so beautiful. It is so wondrous. There are so many times that I just sit there and I read, and I don't read, really read. I sit there out of obligation to do my reading for the week, and I don't pay attention to what God's saying in the beautiful way he says it. We are so blessed. We are so wondrously given grace and mercy from God and given us his word, what he wants us to know in all things. And I'm thankful for that. And that's the end of my message. Hopefully I didn't do go, go too long or too short. I was very worried. Because as I said, this was not where I was going when I started this. When Roman asked me, I said, oh yeah, I got something I'm working on. <laughs> you know, that's in another file now for another time. Hopefully this has been a blessing to you because it's been a blessing to me. And I thank you for your time.